Hey, how are you guys doing today? Yeah, awesome. It's good to be here this morning. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to preach, you know. Um, I, and in a certain way, it's kind of like I drew the, the short straw, right? I mean, this is the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Let's call it a spade a spade. Everyone's on vacation. But I am happy to preach. And I'm looking forward to our text this morning, uh, which um, Hannah just read to us. Thank you, Hannah, for that. One of the most impressive men in history was the Spartan king Leonidas. Leonidas means son of a lion. Leonidas is remembered for the Battle of Thermopylae, where against insurmountable odds, he faced off against King Xerxes I. Now, Xerxes had, and these are conservative estimates, about 300,000 men. As, as some historians say 4 million, but we think about 300,000. And Leonidas had 7,000 men, which included uh, 300 Spartan hoplites, okay? So not good odds, right, General? Not good odds, okay? Um, and, uh, and yet he went into this battle with incredible resolve, such that he was able to hold off the Persians, these Persian hordes, for seven days. If you've seen the movie 300, which is based on this battle, there's this one line where this uh, one Persian says, our arrows will blot out the sun. And then the response is, then we will fight in the shade. I love that. We're inspired by such stories uh, of resolution. Well, um, tomorrow is New Year's Eve, and we will be making uh, a lot of resolutions. Ha roughly half Americans will be having New Year's resolutions, making them. But rather than holding off Persian hordes um, at the Pass of Thermopylae, we'll be trying to hold off from having another suite, or hold off from being on social media so much, or hold off from biting our nails. Yes, we live exciting lives, people. Um, <laughs> Even more depressing, the research tells us that uh, only 8% of us that have New Year's resolutions will actually keep them. Uh, I guess the point is that New Year's resolutions are only as good as the resolve behind them. Well, this morning, I want to look at another world changer from the ancient world, a man who also demonstrated incredible resolve, not in the course of seven days, but throughout his life. Um, unlike Leonidas, the Apostle Paul was nobody to look at, okay? Um, he wasn't a charismatic personality. He was an energetic and talkative man from a despised race. But one thing that Paul demonstrated was that he had incredible resolve. His life was like a laser beam. See, Paul knew who he was. He knew what he was about. He knew what he wanted, and he channeled his entire life to go after that. Most people live their lives like light bulbs. Their energies go in a million different directions. But everything in Paul's life was gathered up, and it was focused like a laser beam with powerful magnification. And that's why Paul's life was so powerful. If you think about it, um, Paul is still having an impact around the world today. If you take the letters of Paul, the letters that he wrote, if we were to crunch them together, they'd be roughly 80 pages. 80 pages. You know, 80 pages is not that big. These are shorter than any single one of Plato's dialogues or Aristotle's treatises. Yet they've generated more comment, more commentary, more sermons, more scholarly monographs, and more dissertations than any other literature in the ancient world. Paul's work, Paul's life, Paul's letters were packed with so much power 
that they continue to change people from Chile to China. How did this happen? We need to stop for a second and think, how did this happen? How did this busy little talkative man from, uh, from somewhere that we don't even really know about, Tarsus, become so influential? How did somebody who really was a nobody become somebody that not only influenced his whole generation, but continues to influence the world today? Where did Paul get this resolve? And how did it work itself out in his life? That's what I want to look at this morning with you. And so we're going to do this in two steps. First, we're going to begin with some biography to discern where Paul got this resolve from. And then we're going to look at how this resolve manifested itself in Paul's life, how it actually functioned in his day-to-day. What was his winning formula? What did it look like, if you will? So this morning, I want us to think about Paul. I want us to try to enter into the mind of Paul. And I want us to give Paul a little bit of credit. I want us to imagine that as we attempt to think into the mind of someone who was so focused, who had such an impact, that it is going to, in many ways, surprise us. You know, if Paul was to give a TED Talk, I have no doubt that people would stand back and think like, wow, this is radical stuff. How does this guy even think this way? We know that's the case because when Paul did speak in the public forums of his day, that was the response. What is this guy even saying? So I want us to look at Paul, and I want us to look at his resolve this morning. First, let's start with where did Paul get his resolve from? To understand where Paul got his resolve from, we need to go back into a little bit of biography. And here I want to acknowledge that I'm indebted to New Testament scholar N.T. Wright's recent biography, Paul. Um, it's just called Paul, a biography, okay? Um, so Paul, or Saul, as he was called at birth, was born in a city of 100,000 people called Tarsus, all right? And it's in what is today southern Turkey. You can see that there on the map. Now, Tarsus was a multilingual, multi-ethnic city, but Paul was part of a minority, a much smaller group within that city, a look-down minor- look minority, which comprised of roughly 1% of the population. Tarsus was known for its textiles, its leathers, its animal products, such as hairs and furs. And Paul was trained in using these products for tent making, a craft that, he, uh, that involved constructing awnings and tents and other products important for those working outdoors or traveling with seasonal work. So tent making was, was an important trade in the Roman Empire because they didn't have a lot of hotels and inns, okay? So you, you kind of had to carry your tent with you if you traveled. But what this meant was that Paul was constantly doing business with people that were cosmopolitan within Rome. So Paul grew up in Tarsus, and he grew up in a Jewish home. So on one hand, he's in a very religious home, but on the other hand, he's involved in this very cosmopolitan, multilingual, multi-ethnic environment. And Paul himself was a polyglot. That means that he spoke many languages. He was fluent in biblical Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic. Um, He spoke Greek, which was the common language of the day. And we believe that he also knew some Latin. Now, Tarsus was a center for philosophy. There was actually a time where Athens was displaced, and Tarsus was an important place for thought in the ancient world. So it was kind of like a Berkeley or an Oxford, where discussing ideas was kind of the matter of the day. And we know from reading Paul that Paul was conversant 
in the thinkers in the philosophies of his day. Exactly how much time he spent with Plato or Aristotle or, or uh, Epicurus or Cicero, we don't know. But we can tell from his writings that Paul was um, very much aware of the thinking that was going on in his day and the great ideas. But a grasp of languages and a grasp of the great ideas of the day is not what makes Paul unique. There were lots of people. I mean, the reality is, is Americans are usually the only people in the world that only speak one language, right? <laughs> okay, so even back then, you need to have lots of language to get along. And everybody within Tarsus, it was pretty much, the, it was kind of culture where people were constantly exchanging ideas. The marketplace of ideas was very much alive. What made Paul unique was that Paul knew the Old Testament. Paul had digested the Bible. Paul knew the ins and the outs. Paul knew the ups and the downs of the Old Testament. Paul could use an illusion from the Old Testament. He could just, just write it with the flick of a pen. Paul had this tremendous grasp. He lived in the Old Testament. Um, it, was a, it was something you could tell he'd been immersed in. And Paul believed the story that the Old Testament told. Paul believed the story. And what was the story? Well, in a nutshell, it was a five-act story. First, it told the story of creation, that God had placed human beings in a garden to walk with God, where heaven and earth were joined together. And then the second chapter of the story was the fall, that because of disobeying instructions, humanity was kicked out of the garden. And then the third chapter was Abraham. God calls Abraham and his descendants from the world to be for the world. Fourth chapter was covenant. This was that Israel was to be, the descendants of Abraham were to be a light to the nations. They were to worship the one true God and do what he says. And then the final chapter for Paul was glory. The Messiah would one day come, put things to right. The guard would once again be humanities. Heaven and earth would once again be restored. This was the map that Paul had as he read his Bible. Now, I use the word story here to emphasize that Paul did not view the Bible as a compendium of rules and dogmas of glittering fragments, of snapshots of detached wisdom. But he read it as a coherent narrative, uh, rooted in creation and covenant. It was a map of the world's underlying trajectory. <clears throat> and so it's a little unhelpful when we use the word story. Sometimes I fear that people think that um, we mean useful fiction. See, story oftentimes is meant that way, and oftentimes we even present our faith as, well, I really like the story of the Bible, and people can hear useful fiction, or what Joseph Campbell calls myth. But it's very important for us to understand that for Paul, Paul viewed the Bible as a true account of the way the world was going to go down. Paul viewed the Bible as giving us a true trajectory of what was going to happen in fact. And he was determined to faithfully play his part in that trajectory. As he read the Bible, he realized he had a critical role to play in this story. And what was that role? Well, in the verses right before the verses that were read today, we actually get a window into how Paul thought about his role. Okay? Uh, in Philippians 3, 5 to 6, Paul tells us he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's take a look at these different ways Paul would describe himself. First, he described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was Jewish to the core. As you can see in that picture right there, you see a, a young Jewish man 
Um, he's got the Teflon, okay? That's, the, that's these, uh, these leather bands and then the little box here. So this Paul would have practiced this, okay? Um, just like all Jews. He would have had small, this small box that has key scripture passages and the armbands. And this was in obedience to what Moses had commanded for male Jews when they were praying in the morning services. The Jews believed they needed to do this in order to, to recognize this keeping scripture close to you. Paul would have celebrated the great festivals such as Tabernacle or what we know as Hanukkah. And Passover, the Passover celebration with this, this evocative meal that celebrated this great deliverance. Paul would have been immersed in that. Paul would have read the Psalms three times a day. He would have declared allegiance to the one God without actually saying the sacred name, the terrifying name, by repeating the phrase Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul says that he was, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he was a law student. He believed if the world was going to ever be put to right, that the Jewish people needed to live up to their calling, that they needed to steer clear of immorality and idolatry, that Israel needed to obey Scripture perfectly, and only then would the Messiah come. And so Paul wanted to be a Pharisee. He wanted to know Scripture so well that he could help his people to live it out point by point so, that, so they could finally have the Messiah come and the world would be restored to rights. And then Paul tells us that as to zeal, he was a persecutor. Paul believed because Israel needed to worship the one true God and not made up gods, that anytime Judaism began to derivate, anytime Judaism began to become renegade, it must be snuffed out immediately. Otherwise, the world will never be healed. And so when this new sect sprung up called Christianity, Paul was a persecutor of this sect. And then finally, he was a law keeper. Paul worked hard in order to make sure that he was obeying all the rules and regulations that he found in Scripture. Paul was drawn to Jerusalem. Jews are drawn to Jerusalem, but Paul had reason to go to Jerusalem. And not only did he have family there, I believe he had a, a sister and a cousin, but Paul also really wanted to go there to study under one of the greatest Jewish minds of his day, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a great rabbi of the period. But interestingly, as Paul studied with Gamaliel, he noticed that there was a divergence in his own thought from this great rabbi. You see, whereas Gamaliel believed in a live-let-live policy, Paul believed in taking action against any renegade or compromising Jews. Again, after all, if the Jews don't get it right, the Messiah will never come. So Paul shows up in Jerusalem, and he shows up after the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Paul would have known of Jesus of Nazareth. He would have heard of this self-styled prophet from Galilee. He, Jesus, after all, wasn't much older than Paul was. He'd heard about how Jesus had created a, a, a giant stir in the temple and among the people. But he also had heard how Jesus was captured, that Jesus was stripped, that Jesus was shamed, handed over to the Romans, and he was killed in the most shameful way. And for Paul, this would have been proof positive that this Jesus was a blaspheming imposter, that this Jesus could not have been the Messiah. After all, who ever heard of a crucified Messiah? It's like a bad joke in Paul's mind. So for, so for Paul, he had heard of Jesus, but there's no way that guy was the Messiah. 
But strangely enough, the followers of this Jesus didn't stop when he was killed. Strangely enough, they claimed that he'd been raised from the dead. And one of them, Stephen, even gave a speech where he said that the temple was only expedient till Jesus came. And that, his, that the entire generation was under the judgment of God because they had rejected Jesus. Well, this made Paul furious. Practicing the temple ritual was the only way. If they don't do it right, the Messiah will never come. And now this? And Paul wasn't alone. People were outraged. And as the Jews marched Stephen outside the gates to stone him, Paul grabbed the coats of Stephen and he was killed. And Paul thought he got what he deserved. Well, when all these followers of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, saw what happened to Stephen, many of them quickly rushed off and scattered and fled Jerusalem, bringing their poisonous thinking with them. So Paul knew what he had to do. If he was going to make sure that Judaism remained pure, he needed to chase those people down. So Paul got, he got permission to go to Damascus, and he headed off there. Zealous to keep Judaism pure, he determined he was going to arrest these other Jesus followers before they spread their poisonous ideas. It was on the road to Damascus that we began honing in on what it was that gave Paul his resolve. It was on the road to Damascus where Paul's Copernican revolution happened. What exactly happened? Well, many people believe, or not many, but many, some scholars believe that it was actually why, why, while Paul was practicing a common practice during that day among Jews, it was a certain kind of meditative practice where you'd go to Ezekiel 1, and in Ezekiel 1, if you've read it, it's this crazy throne scene, right? Where, where Ezekiel has this vision and it, and it starts off with living creatures, and then, and then he moves to this whirling wheels, and then finally sees the throne itself. And then he says, and there on the throne I saw one like the Son of Man. There on the throne I saw some, someone in a human form. So Paul, as was the practice during that time, might have been on that long, hot, you know, ride to Damascus doing this. And as they did this, they would actually do it, and they would actually... Uh, as they would meditate on, on the throne room, they would actually do it to the rhythm of their breathing, reciting, as it was custom, this prayer, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's Paul on this horse, meditating, praying, going up the throne, going up past the living creatures, does he have a vision? Going up higher to the wheels. And he finally feels like he's in the place where he's going to go all the way up to the throne. As he slowly works his way up in his mind to the throne scene, to his utter horror, shock, and surprise, sitting on the throne is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Up until this point, he is the one who is acting. He's the one meditating. He's the one thinking. He's the one that's in control. But the light around that throne that he saw suddenly takes on a life of its own. It becomes bright like a laser beam. It locks onto him. It blinds him. It becomes so bright that he falls off his horse. He finds himself bathed in this brilliant light. And a voice in the midst of this light calls out, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And terrified and confused, he says, who are you, Lord? 
And the voice says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. This event is the nuclear moment for Paul's resolve, turning everything that he knew upside down. It's captured in Caravaggio's famous painting, The Conversion of St. Paul, which you can see up there on the screen. In this painting, we can see that Paul has fallen from his horse, and a divine supernatural light shines down on Paul, and Caravaggio has stripped away everything that's not essential. This is, this is really different. Right up before this, you'd have all these backgrounds, okay? But what Caravaggio has done is a style called tenebrosos, which means a dark style that removes the landscape any of the architecture, anything around him, everything that could, could distract us. And he's pushed Paul uh, forward to the front of the picture. Paul's face is the only face we really get a full glimpse of. The painting is really part of the 17th century kind of naturalism. That's a real horse. You can see the muscle. You can see the dirt on the ground. There's clarity. There's realism. And Paul is a real person in our world. So Sir Caravaggio gives us this very real and personal look at Paul in this private moment, this moment, his Copernican moment. But there's something else that's going on, and um, Tammy, I'm going to ask you to work with me on this, okay? Yeah, this is awesome. Okay, so there's something else going on that Caravaggio does that I want to draw your attention to, because it really captures what Paul says in our text. In the Renaissance, paintings were focused on harmony and balance. You would always have, it would be like a pyramid. You'd have the weight of the painting on the bottom, and then you'd have like a triangle move all the way up. But Caravaggio does something very different. You can see the weight of the painting is on the top. There's this giant horse body, right? Do you see that? And then Paul's arms are in this kind of position that makes almost like a triangle. Excellent, Tammy, you're awesome. You're hired. <laughs> See, everything is upended and, per and precarious. The center of gravity is high rather than low. The largest and most massive part of the painting is at the top. Paul's below this horse with its legs up as if it's about to step on him. He's very vulnerable. His helmet has fallen off. His knees are up. His legs are spread. His arms are spread. He's fragile in his humanity and being confronted by the divine light in a position of absolute vulnerability. Do you see that triangle? What this means is it's been turned on its head, and that's exactly what's happened. Caravaggio got it right. Everything for Paul has been turned upside down. This is his Copernican revolution. This becomes the very source of Paul's resolve. Now, what is a Copernican revolution? Well, the Copernican revolution was the moment we realized we had it backwards, right? We had it backwards. See, this was the moment we realized that the sun didn't revolve around the earth, but the earth around, earth around the sun. And here in this moment, okay, this moment on this road to Damascus is when Paul realizes that he has it backwards. This is the moment when he realizes that Jesus is not a, an imposter, not a blasphemer, that Jesus is, is actually the Messiah, that God the Creator had raised Jesus from the dead, declaring not only that he really was Israel's Messiah, but that Jesus was now the way to God, the way that God would restore heaven and earth, the way that humanity would must, must deal with God in their exile. Jesus, the true Israel of God, had done what Israel could never have done. He lived out the law perfectly. He obeyed it perfectly. There's a reason Jesus had 12 disciples and there's 12 tribes in Israel, right? Jesus is the true Israel. He did what Israel could not do. 
He lived this life of total obedience. He suffered righteously. In fact, God the Creator had raised Jesus from the dead, declaring not only He was Israel's Messiah, but that He actually was God Himself coming in person. That in Jesus, creation itself was relaunched, and that Jesus provided a way for heaven and earth to be reunited, and that his suffering and death was the beginning of a whole new resurrected life. And if you know the story from this moment on, Paul goes 180 degrees, completely flips. See, Paul goes about announcing this good news to everyone. Before he had all his ducks in a row, he was a religious person. He was doing what he thought he should do. But once Jesus Christ reveals himself to Paul, once the laser beam of Christ's love shines down on Paul, everything changes for Paul. Before this, he was going out of his way killing Christians, and now he's leading Christians, and and he's suffering in doing it rather rather than dishing out suffering. All of his accolades, Hebrew of Hebrews, a keeper of the Torah, zealous for good works, all these things he was so proud of, these become nothing compared to the light of Christ's love that shines down on Paul. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 7 to 9, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look what Paul says here. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Notice the loss gain language. Any of you recognize this language? Any accountants out there? Tax season coming up? See what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that when he met Christ, the living Christ, his whole life had an audit. And he had to completely reconceive his past achievements, the value he placed on things. And many of the things that he used to place under the category of assets, he now saw those as losses, a complete audit of his life. I meet people that say, you know, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. But listen to what they're saying when they say that. What they're saying is, I had some things I was trying to accomplish with my life, and I added Jesus, and he didn't get the job done. No, becoming a Christian is not adding Jesus to your life so he can help you get the things you really want in life. A Christian is not someone who's added Christ to the life. A Christian is someone who Christ has become their life. Their life has become so wrapped up in Christ. The beam of Christ's love has shined down on them, and there's nothing they want more. They become resolute to have Christ. Christ is what they must have. A Christian is someone who has met the living Christ, and their entire life has become audited and in light of what it means to know Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want to be found in him. Notice now he shifts the image from auditing to home. Paul goes from saying Christ was this great pearl that I was willing to sell everything for to have to saying that Christ is my true home. Only in Christ do I really feel like my life makes sense, that I really have security. Where else could I go? There's this very touching scene in the Gospels where all the crowds leave Jesus. He's saying some things that aren't very popular. And he turns to the disciples He says, are you going to leave also? And they say, where else could we go? 
You're the only one. You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. I love that scene. Notice that Paul, before, um, has this little, he has this kind of statement, I've counted everything lost, and then that I may be found in him. There's a really subtle thing happening there. Paul shifts from being the subject of a story, I've counted everything lost, to being part of a larger story in which Christ is the subject, that I might be found in him. This is the entire Christian life in a nutshell, in this little verse here. The entire Christian life as we go from dictating our story, being a person that's doing this and this and this, and Jesus is a supporting actor or, or, or whatever it might be, to where suddenly you realize your life is wrapped up in the story of who Jesus is. It's a complete shift. And then Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. A Christian is someone whose life has come under the laser beam of Christ's love and they become a laser beam focused on Christ. Here's what happened for Paul. This is where Paul's resolve came from. The laser beam of Christ's love came shining down on Paul, just shining down on Paul. And as a result, Paul's life had this incredible focus. Paul lived out of that. Paul says, I want to become, uh, I want to become uh, focused on Christ because Christ focused on me. 1 John 4, 9 says, we love because he first loved us. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, this is craziness. Come on, I just got roped into going to church today, and this is a bunch of radical talking. There's some guy that was going to kill people, and they become some kamikaze Christian, and he's, this is all, this just seems like a lot of fanaticism. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's only one way in which you can become a Christian. Not everybody has this moment where they just flip. Okay, for some people it's gradual. For some people it just takes place slowly. All right, there's different temperaments. Some people are very emotional and dramatic and for them becoming a Christian is a very emotional, dramatic thing. There's other people that are just, they're just very, very deliberate and calm and rational. And becoming a Christian for them is just a very deliberate thing. But here's the thing that all these have in common. All of them are where someone comes to a place where they know that they must have Jesus Christ because Christ has revealed himself to them. Because the living Christ has revealed himself to them. That's what it means to be a Christian. That grabs a hold of you. And sometimes, what's amazing to me is sometimes you don't even know what's happening. Sometimes you think like, oh, I'll investigate this Christianity stuff. Like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, wow, I didn't know Christians are actually intelligent. Who knew? You know, oh, I'll read this book. I'll read that book. Oh, a, a class coming up on C.S. Lewis. Oh, something on science. And, and they're coming. And, and, and next thing you know, they're like, I can't put this stuff down. You know what that is? That's the light of Christ beginning to shine on you. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you're in church, I've got some news for you. You might be on a road to Damascus right now and you don't know it. You might be in a situation right now where Jesus Christ is pulling you in and I've got some more news for you. Once the light of Christ shines down on you, there's nothing else that will satisfy you. There's nothing else you're going to want more. You're going to have to have a complete audit of your life. You're going to have to look at the whole thing and say, oh my gosh, what really matters? 
The bottom line is, to be a Christian is to come to the place where we know we must have Jesus. We have to have Christ, whatever the cost. So we gather up our whole life and we focus it on Jesus. And this is why baptism is such a fitting, fitting ritual to talk about someone that's become a Christian. What happens in baptism? Baptism, you go under and you come up. You say, my old life, my old way of living life has completely gone and now I've experienced the laser beam of the love of Christ. It's dawned on me and nothing can be the same. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I've counted it all loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Notice the sweeping nature of Paul's resolve. Take everything in my life, everything, it's muck, it's dung, it's trash. The word there in Greek can be translated excrement. It's worthless compared to knowing Christ. So before we end, I just want to look at two ways this shaped Paul's life, this radical resolve. Two ways. Um, And the first has to do with this awakening that he had, that this was a suffering Messiah. That this was a suffering Messiah. Paul says in verse 10 that he desires to know him in the power of his resurrection, that he might share in the sufferings of Christ. What does Paul mean by this? Well, Paul here is most certainly referring to the pattern of suffering and exaltation that he mentions earlier in the book in Philippians 2, 4-9. He says this, Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How did Christ love us? He did so through a radical, self-emptying servanthood. He did it with a suffering love. He did it by denying himself of his own rights and becoming others-oriented. He did it through a glad self-giving that poured itself out even to the point of death. Paul recognized this, and he realized that to know Christ, to be found in Christ, means that we too must have a complete reorientation of our lives, where we lay aside our preferences, we lay aside the things that we think we deserve and that are ours by right, and we head towards others and we love them sacrificially. This is called taking up your cross. Taking up your cross is not, I'm just going to live this life of stoicism and self-denial. It means that you do whatever it takes to love other people, even when it hurts. Jesus said, if you want to follow me in my laser beam of love, you too must live a life of radical, sacrificial love. You need to lay aside your preferences. Paul did this a number of ways. Paul did this by being a tent maker. Paul didn't need to be a tent maker. Paul didn't need to continue to be a tent maker. Paul had become educated under Gamaliel. Paul was a Roman citizen. Being a tent maker meant you were of a poor or lower socioeconomic class. And so for him to continue to do this was an act of socioeconomic self-abasement, self-humiliation, and status renunciation. But Paul did this because he wanted to offer the gospel free of charge. He knew that it would create tension, and some people might think he was only in it for the money. So he was working a job on the side while he was a full-time apostle. Hard, right? So Paul 
One of the ways he entered into the sufferings of Christ was very practical. He was a tent maker. Another way was Paul had this certain cultural flexibility. Paul laid his subcultural preferences aside, his own likes, his own style wants and wishes, so that he could present Christ, so that others might know Christ. Paul says, to the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law, so that I might win those under the law. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So when with the Jews, what did Paul do? Well, Paul, he respected the Jewish dietary laws. He followed the Jewish calendar. But when with the Gentiles, he dropped these things because he didn't want them to think that to be a Christian, you had to follow Jewish dietary laws and the Jewish calendar. See, he had this tremendous flexibility out of love. A tremendous flexibility out of love. He had a flexibility regarding various cultural structures and limitations. He laid his preferences aside, and he said, you know what, what does love look like? I'm going to pursue that so that people can know the gospel. And one of the ways that churches die is they don't let go of their own subculture they, they develop. That's a surefire. If, if we don't follow Christ with this kind of flexibility where we're willing to invite people in and let go of our own preferences, people can sense it. And they don't see the, the, the laser beam of Christ's love at work. They don't recognize the sufferings of Christ. Um, and they don't hear the gospel. Finally, Paul embraced all kinds of hardship. You know, uh, if you get the next slide, Tammy, I'm not going to read the passage, but in 2 Corinthians 11:25, Paul goes through this litany of sufferings, okay, that he went through. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was pelted with stones. Three times he was shipwrecked. 24 hours in the open sea. Youch. Constantly on the move. Dangerous rivers, bandits, Jews, Gentiles, cities, countryside, seas, uh, false believers, labored endlessly. There's that tent making. He went without sleep, food, drink. He found himself cold and naked, imprisoned, beaten. I mean, the guy had a rough life, and I've oftentimes thought, like, man, Paul, thank God I don't live Paul's life. Like, that, that guy, you know, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, he wasn't. He headed into that. Number one, traveling in the ancient world just meant you were going to have rough times. It, you, you know, it's not like today, okay? But number two, he knew that if he was going to fulfill his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, this was part of what it cost. And the thing that really touched me as I was studying for this was that when I think of Paul's sufferings, I forget that Paul did this out of love. Paul, when you read about the sufferings that Paul went through, realize that Paul, and in Philippians, he mentions, I have such a passion and a longing to see you, and I have such affection for you. Paul was invested. Paul loved people. He embraced hardship. The second thing, and finally, is that Paul had a new kind of ambition. Not only did Paul enter into the sufferings of Christ, but he had a new kind of ambition. And we'll close with this. This this new kind of resolution resulted in Paul demonstrating a drive that he didn't have before. Yeah, Paul was driven before, but now he had a completely new kind of drive. Now he was driven by the laser beam of Christ's love. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize 
of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says he presses on. He presses on. This is a really interesting word. It's in verses 12 and 14, but the word is also found in verse 6. And there it's translated persecute. I persecuted the church. How could that be? Press on, persecute. What's happening here? Well, the word literally means to beat. And Paul used to gather up all all the Christians and beat them. And now he has a different focus. He's gathering all of his life up and he's beating it closer and closer, pushing it harder and harder towards what? His goal of knowing Christ, of living in obedience, of walking close to Christ. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. This is like my life verse. If Paul wasn't, if Paul hadn't arrived, there's room for me and there's room for you. You know, Christians, we need to give each other a break sometimes, right? This is the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, come on. The guy has some credentials. He's got some street cred. Apostle to the Gentiles, kind of a big job description. Wrote the Bible. That's pretty impressive. Like, hey, I wrote a book. Oh, really? What's it called? The Bible. You want to read it? I mean, this is Paul, okay? And if he hadn't arrived, we can give each other some grace, all right? But, you know, the thing that's really amazing to me is, and, and, and by the way, there are certain church traditions that say crazy stuff, like you can be bumped up to another plane in which you leave sin behind, you know, you can reach a place of victorious living, or you can be perfected in love, you know. Um, that would be nice, okay? But, I mean, if there ever was a Christian that could have arrived, it was Paul, and he's saying, I haven't arrived. I haven't achieved it, you know? 1 John 1, 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, Okay? But here's what is impressive about what Paul is doing here. Paul has a certain attitude, and this is his attitude. He's saying, I don't want to rest on my laurels. I don't want to look back and say, well, I've been a Christian for all these years. I'm good to go. I gave it the good college try. I'll just cruise into heaven. You know what Paul's saying? Like, man, Paul is hungry. Paul is hungry to follow Christ more closely. Paul's hungry to know Christ more deeply. Paul has not just faded out. Paul has the finish line in sight, and he's going for it. I recently read um, about an interview with J.I. Packard. And J.I. Packard is, you know, this really important, amazing theologian who, you know, um, he usually endorses every Christian book that comes out because it kind of like, once J.I. Packard endorses you, you pretty much know it's a, it's a solid theological book. But um, he's lost his eyesight. I don't know if you know this, J.I. Packard. Lost his eyesight. And they were interviewing him, and the interviewer said, like, how, what's it like for you to have lost your eyesight? How are you, how are you dealing with that? And his attitude was amazing. J.I. Packard said, are you kidding me? He said, since I've lost my eyesight, I can see Jesus so much clearer. I know I'm near the finish line, and I'm so inspired to push through to the end because I know I'm about to see Christ. That's what Paul was like. Paul's like, man, I haven't arrived. There is ground to take. I'm young in Jesus. I've got eternity. I'm pressing through to the end. I love Paul's attitude. I strain forward to what lies ahead because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Again, notice the motivation. Christ to shine his light down, his love on me, and that drives me and propels me. So, in conclusion, will we have resolutions in 2019? Doesn't really matter. Some of you will and some of you won't. That's fine. But here's what I want us to see. We need to follow Paul. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We need to follow Paul. 
with the same kind of single-minded resolve that I might know Jesus Christ, to know him, to grow closer to him, to be so overcome by his suffering and sacrificial love that in turn it results in this life of self-giving to where it hurts, loving to where it hurts, to where it's painful. And you know what's amazing? Paul believed that that kind of love, that kind of sacrifice, those sufferings, what was it driven by? For Paul, it was driven by the same power that would raise us from the dead. And when you find yourself loving to where it hurts, you know what that power is? That's the same power that is going to be part of your resurrection someday. I love Jonathan Edwards, great theologian. Jonathan Edwards believed that every time we suffer righteously, we open up our souls wider so that when we come to glory, we will shine all the more brighter. And I think that's what Paul, Paul believes. Paul believed that because Christ had sunk so low and given himself so radically to the point of death, that he would be elevated so much higher in glory. Let's follow Christ. Let's follow Christ this year in entering into his love and experiencing it and recognizing the laser beam of his love and then shining that out on others. So Christians, Christ Church, how are we doing? Great. <laughs> Amen. What's it going to be this year, 2019? What's it going to be? Paul says, this one thing I do. Is it going to be these 20 things I dabbled in? Paul says, this one thing I do. How are we doing? Are we pressing on and knowing Jesus Christ? Are we going to love each other with abandonment? Are we going to lay aside our preferences and serve each other for the sake of the gospel? If you're not a Christian, don't you want to know about this Jesus? Don't you want to encounter this Jesus? Don't you want to know the face of love that left heaven for you? How can you say no to that? The one that came and died for you? If his light shines on you, your life will never be the same. And maybe you're not a Christian saying, well, how do I know? How do I know? Hey, you're here today. What in the world are you doing in church at this time? He's drawing you. Can't you see that? Surrender yourself to him. Find the love that you were made for. Praise be to God.